Have you ever read a book or watched a movie as a kid and really, really enjoyed it, and then later in life went back and re-engaged it with new eyes and came to the realization that there was an entire treasure trove of, of depth and meaning and wisdom that you had just completely missed the first time around. This is a cool experience. I think the very best art has this effect. Now, if you're thinking about the Goonies right now, <laughs> stop. Your, your nostalgia is getting the best of you. It doesn't hold up, okay? But if you're thinking about the Chronicles of Narnia book series by C.S. Lewis right now, okay, maybe we can share some common ground here. I remember the very first time that I read the Chronicles of Narnia series in elementary school, and I loved it. I mean, it, it was incredible. But now, as an adult, when I read it to my kids, my eyes well up. I'm, I'm overwhelmed by the truths that these books convey that only this older version of me can ever truly appreciate. The book of Daniel in the Bible has had the same effect on me. It's a book with so many incredible and familiar stories. I mean, we've all known about the story of Daniel and the lion's den since we were kids. Even those of us who didn't grow up in church, myself included. How many of us um, have told someone else the writings on the wall and of course, most of us have heard the Beastie Boys sing, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. <laughs> First two minutes, uh, I have a Goonies and a Beastie Boys reference. Now you know why you came this morning. Back to Daniel. Come on, people, back to Daniel. Now, as I have had the chance to read and teach through Daniel several times recently, it has struck me that while these stories that I referenced are truly memorable, the lasting legacy of Daniel is in its deep foundational truths, which transcend times and cultures and are very much applicable today. I have a hot take this morning. You ready for this? I'm coming right out of the gates with it. We might have as much to learn from the book of Daniel about living in today's world, right here and now, as any other in the entire Bible. Let's dive into chapter 1 together and put this theory to the test. As the book of Daniel begins, we find God's people in a very, very tough spot. At this point in history, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire had started taking over the entire known world. And in 587 B.C., all of Jerusalem was defeated and completely destroyed, just demolished to the ground, with almost all of its citizens picked up and carted off to Babylon. But to get to the events of Daniel chapter 1, we actually have to back up a bit. You see, this was not Nebuchadnezzar's first time coming through Jerusalem. He had come through once before, 10 years earlier, 
on his way to going down and waylaying the Egyptians with almost no resistance whatsoever. Just to give you an idea of how powerful the Babylonian Empire really was. And on their victory tour back to Babylon, he stopped off in Jerusalem and thought, hmm, this wouldn't be a bad place to take over either. But this first time in Jerusalem, he did not haul off every single person that he found, as he would end up doing 10 years later. What did he do instead? He scooped up the 10,000 best and brightest young Israelites he could find. Members of the royal family, military leaders, professionals, scholars, writers, artists. And he took them back to Babylon first. Now, why would he do that? Well, if you can put yourself in the shoes of a megalomaniac dictator, just for a second, there are multiple ways to attempt to subject another nation to your will. You can rule with an iron fist, pushing that nation down and holding them down as hard as you possibly can. Or you can do what the Babylonians were absolutely great at, assimilation. You see, if you really want a subjugated people to continue to do your will, you have to change their culture and their values to look more like yours. You have to Babylonize them. I made that up. It's not a real word. The plan here was simple. Take the smartest, best-looking, most successful people who are the most likely to be able to influence others and start introducing them to Babylonian culture, Babylonian arts, Babylonian ways of life. Make no bones about it. Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to take the Hebrew worldview and culture apart, brick by brick, so that the people would forget that they were Hebrew in the first place. He wanted them to think like Babylonians, to feel Babylonian intellectually, culturally, spiritually. Nebuchadnezzar wanted these young people to forget completely about Israel and certainly about Israel's God and instead slowly but surely turn them into Babylonians at heart. Now, if we want to identify important takeaways from the book of Daniel and apply them to our own time and place, and I hope we do, this is our first important moment. The reality of our own time is that the winds have been changing over the past decade or so. The winds of culture, the predominant views of this world, what is truth, what is morality, what is goodness? And the direction of those winds, I am afraid, are now blowing directly in the face of those who profess Jesus as Lord, those who call themselves children of God. The church, in case you haven't noticed, is decidedly out of favor now with the rest of the Western world. 
And our relevance and our influence on the culture at large only seems to be fading. We live in what is increasingly becoming a post-Christian world. Now, you might be thinking, I don't really feel like we're being taken out of our homes and shipped off to another land to become servants of a dominating empire. And that is absolutely true. That what we are experiencing right now pales in comparison to the, the magnitude of the Babylonian captivity. But make no mistake, the heart, the aim of our world today is very much the same. Right this very second, there are people strategizing, drawing up plans, creating programs, making art designed to take the Christian worldview and culture apart, brick by brick. They want you to think secularly, to feel secular intellectually, culturally, spiritually. The world wants you to forget completely about God and instead slowly but surely become worldly at heart. In this way, brothers and sisters, we should absolutely consider ourselves to be exiles in this world that we live in. Now, I'm far from the first person to suggest this. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, the authors constantly remind Christians that we should make this connection. Now, if you want a good example of how the Babylonians attempted to accomplish this, this, this assimilation in our passage for this morning, look no further than the names given to the key figures in our story. Daniel is a great, strong name in Hebrew. It means, God is my judge. But when Daniel gets to Babylon, he's given a new name, Belteshazzar. You know what that means? It means Bel, chief of the Babylonian gods, is my protector. Daniel's friend in co-exile, Hananiah's name in Hebrew, means the Lord is gracious. It's beautiful. But his name is changed to Shadrach, which means I fear Aku, the Babylonian moon god. Mishael's name meant who is like God. And his name was changed to Meshach, which means, who is like Aku? Azariah means in Hebrew, the Lord is my helper. And his name is changed to Abednego, which means Nebo, the God of nature, is my helper. These are not randomly assigned names, as you can clearly see. They are very intentionally crafted to not just distract from these men's understanding and their glorification of God, but to remove it completely and replace it. They want to replace these with, with a new understanding and a new glorification of the Babylonian gods, the Babylonian culture, and the Babylonian king. Make no mistake, this is an intentional and complete assault on the identities of these young people. Identity. This is so crucial 
Because a loss of identity means a loss of remembrance of who they were, who they were created to be, of who God is and what God had done for them as a people. This is going to become a huge problem for the people that are sucked in by it. Because if part of the solution to surviving and even thriving in exile is standing in faith for the God who placed you there and knowing that he can and will rescue you from it, well, it's going to become a lot harder to do if we don't even remember God in the first place. And isn't this just as dangerous for us today? Let me put the question to us slightly differently this morning. How do you know if you are falling prey to the world's attempts to assimilate you? Here's a very simple set of questions to ask. How often do I make a stand against the culture, against the world around me? How often do I refrain from doing something because it doesn't line up with God's will as revealed through Scripture? If the answer to those questions is not often, rarely, never, the reality is we have most likely been assimilated to a pretty significant degree. Now, if all of this sounds to you like a very challenging word this morning, it probably should. The dangers of assimilation are real and run deep. So what do we do? If the biggest problem that the exiles in Babylon faced and the biggest problem that we face today just happens to be conforming to the world around us, what is the natural solution to this problem? It's fleeing, right? Get out of there. Escape. Move out of Babylon. Create a city of Israelites on the outskirts of the empire. Avoid interacting with any Babylonians and create for yourself a Babylonian-free society. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 28, a prophet named Hananiah, different guy from Daniel's friend, interestingly. What are the odds we have two Hananiahs in the same story? Echoing the cries of other prophets during the time, Hananiah declared that the Israelites need not bother with captivity in Babylon. It was a mistake, this exile. And God would very quickly end it, destroying Babylon and bringing everyone immediately back to Jerusalem. Thus, it didn't make any sense to subject oneself to the assimilating efforts of the king and the culture. Flee, rid yourselves of God's judgment. Rid yourselves of the Babylonians, for this burden they're placing on you will not last. Stand outside the city and pray against Babylon. Ask for God's judgment to sort out true friend from foe. We can do this today, too. 
We can flee from the worldliness that we find around us. We can separate ourselves from everything about this culture. We can pray against our perceived enemies, hoping for their downfall and for God's judgment to make them regret their evil ways. Sounds kind of good, doesn't it? It sounds like a way out to avoid the pitfalls that, that comes along with living in, in a culture that's hostile to God. There's only one problem with it. Hananiah, who bid those Hebrews to flee from Babylon in Jeremiah chapter 28. Do you know what he's called in that chapter? A false prophet. Jeremiah calls him out saying, the message that you preach to the people sounds kind of good, but that's not God's words, and it is not God's will. So we're right back where we started. What then do we do? Clearly, we're not to conform to the culture we find around us, but we're apparently also not to flee from the world. Is there an alternative Is there a third way to posture ourselves, to attempt to engage with the culture that we find around us? The sermon would be quite a downer if I said no, wouldn't it? (laughs) I'm sorry, there is no other way. We're all left to, to fend for ourselves. Let's pray. Of course there's a third way. I wouldn't have asked the question if the answer wasn't yes. And in chapter 29, the very next chapter, Jeremiah himself, a true prophet of God, who was really listening and speaking the words of God to the people, gives us this third way. He makes a huge and important correction to the urging of the false prophet Hananiah. And speaking to the Hebrew exiles in Babylon, Jeremiah gives them these words. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives that he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply Do not dwindle away and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is an astounding command. What is Jeremiah saying here? He says, do not flee. Do not wall yourselves up from Babylon. Live your lives. Raise your families. Exist in the world where you find yourself, where I, your God, have placed you for this time and season of life. And seek the good of that place. Pray for it. Influence it for the sake of my kingdom. 
Be my witness to all those you come into contact with so that they might see there is something different and better that can be experienced in this world. And these are the words. That is the third way that we find being forged by Daniel and his friends in our story for today. For Daniel most certainly does not flee from Babylon. He does not create a holy huddle of friends and family, hoping to simply wait it out until God destroys Babylon and takes him away from all this fallenness and sin. I mean, here he is, having been captured and forced to attend Babylon Tech University so that he and his friends might become leaders and influencers for King Nebuchadnezzar, taking Babylonian history classes, being trained in the black arts of witchcraft and fortune-telling. It's true. This is exactly what they did. But this does not mean that Daniel refused to take a stand for the sake of his beliefs, because he clearly does that in this chapter too. By refusing to eat the food and drink the wine that the king is offering to his apprentices, Daniel is making a huge statement in a very quiet voice. He is not trying to shout people down in the streets. He's not leading an exile revolt. He's not even trying to undermine the king and his authority. I mean, the only other person who even knew about this plan was the attendant who was in charge of them. What Daniel is trying to do, however, is to remind himself and his friends who is ultimately responsible for their well-being. It is not Babylon or anyone associated with Babylon. Whatever befalls these young men, whether they perish or they thrive, it will happen not because of Bel or Aku or Nabo. It will not even be because of Nebuchadnezzar. It will be because of the one true God. It is God who feeds and sustains his children not the food and drink of the king. Now here's the rub, friends. If we celebrate the godless culture around us, we will be conformed to it and we will never be able to rise above it. We'll never be able to change it. At the same time, if we fear and flee the world around us, we'll never be able to enter deeply enough into it to influence it for God. The reality is Babylon needed God and our world needs Christ. So here we find ourselves needing to strike a balance, living a life of engagement with our surrounding culture, yet a life of distinctness and integrity before God. How can we possibly accomplish this? It's not going to be easy. If we're looking for easy, either of those first two paths is probably the way to go. The third way requires asking a lot of hard questions 
and putting yourself in difficult situations. It requires loving and reaching out to people who do not share your understanding of the world. And at the same time, quietly, humbly living a life that does not look anything like theirs. It requires constantly assessing yourself to see which of those first two ways you are most susceptible to slipping into. I fear that a lot of us, if we're being honest this morning, struggle with the first one. We conform, we assimilate, and we have no idea we're even doing it. We're not familiar enough with the voice of God to even know what his will or what his kingdom looks like, let alone to know if we're being led in the opposite direction. If I'm being honest this morning, I struggle a bit with both of these. I certainly get lured in by the pleasures of the the secular world, just like anyone else. I blindly consume media. I get caught up in the rat race of appearances and greed. I distract myself with things that simply do not matter in the kingdom of God. But looking deep inside my own heart, if I'm being honest this morning, my biggest danger is probably going too far the other way. Just wanting to escape the worldliness that causes me so much anxiety and fear. Praying against the world rather than for it. Hoping for the downfall of my adversaries rather than their redemption. Again, I ask the most important question this morning. How can we avoid this? How can we find the narrow path of the third way? We live into the life of the one who has done it perfectly. No, not Daniel. You see, Daniel, as we will continue to find throughout this entire series, he's not the hero of the story. Daniel, steady and faithful though he is, is but a shadow of the true exile One who wandered this world with no home, having given up his throne in heaven. Daniel points us to the one who taught us to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, so that you might give to God what is God's. One who did not come to overthrow Rome or to strike out at his enemies, but humbly and peacefully set himself apart from the culture all the same. One who never sought the downfall of those who opposed God, but desired to shepherd them back to the Father, and who prayed for his enemies, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. You will be constantly, constantly tempted to conform or flee assimilate or rebel. Lose your own identity and replace it with the one that the world is offering to give you. Or resist by force and escape by any means the so-called enemy that you find all around you. We are exiles. 
We are citizens of heaven, left to wander this world and wait for Jesus to return and restore it back to our true home, which is the eternal presence and love of God and a relationship with him. It's going to be hard work, brothers and sisters, to engage our culture in this third way, in Jesus's way. But we can do it by setting our sights on the one who already has. We anchor ourselves to Christ. We stay in community. We engage the world around us with love and respect. We immerse ourselves in God's word together, constantly through scripture and prayer. We treat our discipleship with the utmost seriousness and devotion. And we encourage each other. We exhort one another back into the loving arms of God. This is the only way forward, but it's a good way. It's a hopeful way. It's Daniel's way, and it is Christ's way. I leave you with this question. Is taking this step, is finding this way what your heart truly desires? this morning? If so, would you pray with me? God, we come to you as your people in desperate need of your guidance, in need of your wisdom. I pray for everyone who's here today that we have heard your voice, we have felt your spirit, and you will move us, you will guide us in the way we are to go. For those who are here this morning who may not yet believe that Jesus is the true way, I pray that your spirit would reach out to them. They would show them his beauty, his love. It would be something that truly pulls them forward, pulls them toward you. For those of us who do believe, I pray for wisdom. I pray for discernment. I pray for perseverance to be able to deal with what is becoming a difficult world to deal with. But let us find true hope, true joy, true peace in Jesus. Let us follow his path that he has blazed before us. We love you. We pray everything this morning in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.